Well, I don't have slides this morning, but we do have light uh, in this room, so if you have a Bible with you or want to grab uh, the one underneath the chair in front of you, if you can reach the socially distanced chair in front of you, this will be on page 890 in that Bible, but the scripture uh, for the sermon uh, will be John chapter 5, starting in verse 16 and then through verse 30. John writes, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Christ first. That, as you know, is the name of our church now, and that name reflects our purpose. Those are words that we chose to represent who we are and what we are all about. We are to put Christ first in everything we do, to join in God's mission to make Christ known so that he may be worshipped and glorified in the life of our church, in our individual lives, and in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church which is called from every people and nation. This morning I want to ask a question that maybe no one was asking, at least not out loud. I like to answer questions that nobody asked. You can uh, check with my wife for verification on that. But the question I want to look at is a good question, and that is, why Christ first? Why Why not God first? You know, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that there are two other persons in the Godhead you know, the Father and the Holy Spirit, so what are they, chopped liver? Why are we singling out one person of the Trinity? Are we missing out on the other two-thirds? Should we maybe try to focus on them equally? So that's the question I want to look at this morning, and to answer that question, uh, 
in, at least in a timely manner, uh, this sermon will have to be a little bit more topical for lack of a better word. In other words, I'm not going to be able to go through the sermon text verse by verse and any other texts that apply. What we'll do instead is look at some of the key details of the historic doctrine of the Holy Trinity and then see how it plays out in the pages of Scripture. I know that sounds backwards, but bear with me and hopefully at least make a, a tiny little bit of sense. Sometimes I, I make sense. It happens on occasion. Uh, you can check with my wife for verification. But, and at least after I've attempted to answer the question, I will talk a little bit about why it matters so much to us to get this right. So let's dive into the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Just so we start on the same page here, the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it is a word that Christians have used just as a shorthand summary for what the Bible teaches about who God is. And the authors of the website gotquestions.org have a helpful summary of the doctrine of the Trinity in four points. Actually, I wish I had this on a slide for you, but their four points are, number one, there is one and only one true and living God. And then point number two, this one God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Number three, these persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. And then number four, while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. You got all that? Uh, <laughs> this is beyond our ability to fully grasp. If you think that you understand it, um, you probably don't. Uh, if you think you have taken all the mystery out of it and there's nothing left for you to wonder about with the Trinity, um, you're probably a heretic. I mean, you probably believe something false about the Trinity. We have all kinds of ways of trying to wrap our minds around this, and most of them, if we, we go too far, they lead us in the wrong direction. And one mistake that we make, that I've made in my life, is, is what I like to call uh, the Spice Girls theology of the Trinity. This will be good, just, just bear with me. If you're not familiar, I know we've got some younger people here, uh, the Spice Girls were a group back in the 90s. Um, they were all girls, and I guess they were, they were all spicy. Uh, but each one had kind of a different persona. Uh, you know, you had Scary Spice, and Posh Spice, and Baby Spice, and uh, Old Spice, um, <laughs> Pumpkin Spice, you know, Sean Spicer. They were all part of the Spice Girls, and I guess they would, uh, they would sing songs and fight crimes or whatever. I have no idea. But I'll tell you what I want. What I really, really want us to see here is that uh, sometimes we think of the Trinity along similar lines. So we, we have the three persons who are part of this group that we call the Godhead, and, but we want to assign a different persona to each one. So we, we think of the Father as all wrath and judgment, so he's scary God. Uh, the Son is obviously baby God, right, because uh, he's the Son, and he's all about love and peace and stuff, and this Holy Spirit must be posh God because, uh, you know, all the cool churches are big on, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm saying that's not the right way to think about it. So what is the difference between Father and Son and Holy Spirit? Uh, they're distinct persons, but it's not really helpful to think of them as, as having distinct personalities or different character. They're, they're not three beings who are, make up parts of of one group. They all have the same being, 
the same essence, the same attributes. The Son isn't more loving or gracious than the Father, and the Father isn't more holy or authoritative than the Son, and the the Spirit isn't more spiritual or or exciting than the, the Son or the Father. They're not three beings, they're one in being, even though that's impossible for us to fully wrap our minds around. And the distinction between the persons, since I asked the question, is, is really all, already laid out for us in the Nicene Creed that we'll read earlier, uh, later on, uh, what's called the eternal procession, as the Son is begotten of the Father before all worlds, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, so that the Father is the one who's unbegotten, the Son is the one who's begotten of the Father, and, and so forth with the Holy Spirit. So it's not a matter of having different personalities or attributes. They are one in mind and one in nature. If you get to know the Son, that means get to know his heart, the way he thinks, the way he feels, you'd also know what the Father is like, and you'd know what the Spirit is like, too. And that's, that's really the, the core thing to grasp this morning. That's the nature of the unity of the three persons. To know one is to know the other two. And it's interesting to see how this plays out in God's interactions with the world in today's sermon text. So in John chapter 5, Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders didn't like that. They saw that as breaking the Sabbath, as working on the Sabbath. They really don't like what Jesus has to say in response. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is a bold claim in those days. The Jewish rabbis taught that God himself didn't fully keep the Sabbath. I mean, yes, God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, but he still has to be at work uh, upholding creation and and caring for his creation, upholding the universe. God's providence didn't shut down every Saturday, and they had various lines of reasoning to explain that, but the bottom line is that God is not unrighteous for continuing his work of providential care. He sort of gets a a divine exemption from having to to fully rest on the Sabbath. So Jesus is breaking the Sabbath in their eyes, but he's also making himself equal to God. God is his father, he says, and so in essence, he qualifies for that divine exemption from this Sabbath-keeping, and this makes the Jewish leaders rather cranky. But Jesus just keeps going. He says in verse 19 that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Um, I, you know, myself, Jared, as a human being, I have a son, and my son is in this stage, it's really kind of an entertaining stage, where he will copy whatever it is that I do. Uh, No matter how foolish, you know, I stub my toe and fall down and scream like a girl, he will stub his toe and fall down and scream like a girl. That's that's just where we are right now in our relationship. Um, That is not, I repeat, that is not exactly what's going on in John 5. Maybe there's some similarity. Uh, There's a reason God reveals uh, this relationship between father and son in the terms of father and son, right? But it's deeper than that. The persons of the Trinity are one in being, though distinct in persons, and that means that they're also one in doing, though they remain distinct persons. Uh, Theologians call this, I like to just throw out big words here, uh, pretend like I know what they mean, but it's the doctrine of inseparable operations, the idea that the outward works of the Trinity 
are indivisible, can't be divided. So everything God does in the world involves all three persons of the Trinity. If I had more time, we could throw out some verses and show this with creation. I'm through, but the, the three persons can be distinguished from one another within God's works, just as the three persons are distinct in God's being. But nevertheless, when God acts in the world, it is one act of God. Nor is it an assembly line as if each person contributes different actions to one project as they're working together. Uh, one theologian, uh, Scott Swain, I think puts it really well. He says, all of God's eternal works, or all of God's external works, rather, excuse me, all of God's external works from creation to consummation are works of the three divine persons enacting one divine power ordered by one divine wisdom expressing one divine goodness and manifesting one divine glory. So when Jesus says he can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, he means exactly what he says. It's impossible that he should do any other works other than the works that the Father himself does. It's not just that the Son won't do likewise or isn't allowed to, he cannot. Notice also that Jesus says, he doesn't say, rather, whatever the Father tells the Son to do, that the Son does likewise, but whatever the Father does. And it's not just imitation. It's deeper than that. It's not just obedience. It's deeper than that. They are active in the same works. This is why, I didn't read the verse, but later on, the same chapter in verse 36, Jesus can say that the works that the Father has given him, he says, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus has already said that if he bears witness to himself, his testimony is not true. So how can the works that Jesus is doing testify to him? Because he's not alone in those works. They are the Father's works. Let me put it this way. Every sign that Jesus performed in his ministry, his earthly ministry, is the work of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, just as in the incarnation itself. The Father sent the Son to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So let's be clear here, if, I, if we can, as clear as I can be. It's not the Son, I mean, excuse me, it's, it's not, what, am I, what do I have written here? You have to be really careful when you, I need, I need to get some glasses maybe. It is only God the Son who becomes incarnate, who takes on human nature, not the Father. But it is not only the Son who is revealed in the person of Christ. The entire trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is made known wherever Christ is made known. This is exactly what Jesus told Philip in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is where Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Jesus goes on. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So the persons of the Godhead are so united and so indwell one another that to know one is to know all. Uh, there's a, just to give you more words, theologians call this perichoresis. They're, they're indwelling or interpenetrating one another. It's called perichoresis, or maybe that's some kind of gum disease. I don't know. Could be mixing up my words here. But, but where one person works, 
all three are at work. The Father is working through the Son in Jesus' earthly ministry. So to know the Son is to know the Father. By the way, the inverse is also true. If you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father. In John's first letter, 1 John chapter 2, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And back in uh, our main text here in John 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. To honor Christ is to honor God. To fail to honor Christ is to fail to honor God. There are, well, I have written down two reasons, but I can probably think of others. I mean, first, because God the Father loves Christ the Son and gave his Son this position of authority and honor. So to fail to recognize Christ's position and his worth of honor is to dishonor the one who sent him to that position. It's also uh, to fail to honor Christ is to fail to honor God because Christ is God, or to put that in more Trinitarian terms, the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, so that in dishonoring the Son you also dishonor the Father. But then to glorify the Son is to glorify the Father. Uh, Jesus taught this again in John's Gospel in chapter 12. When the time had come for him to go to the cross and die for our sins, he paradoxically talks about this as uh, this moment of, of shame and condemnation, but he talks about it as the moment of his glorification. Now, now the hour has come, now is the Son of Man glorified. The, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But it's also the Father's time of glorification. As Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Or as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What are the next words? Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glorification of Christ is the glorification of the Father. And the glory of Christ is also the mission of the Holy Spirit. Back to John 15. When the Helper comes, this is John 15, 26, if you want to try to flip around with me, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, Christ rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. He's not physically with us. We don't look at him somewhere and see him. But the Spirit makes him known through the Word of God, and in making him known, makes the Father known as well. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the true mark of the Spirit's presence. It's not, not just miracles or emotions in worship. Those are good things. It's a genuine confession of the Lordship of Christ. Is all this Trinity talk getting kind of complicated? Um, do you feel a little bit lost? I actually kind of hope that we do feel a little bit lost. I don't want to help you feel like you've got the Trinity thing down, because you, you don't. I want you to be amazed by the Trinity, to be lost in wonder and love and praise. Because in Christ, God has shown us something wonderful, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And in some incomprehensible way, through the power of the Spirit, he draws us up into that relationship. Through the union with the Son and his atoning death and resurrection, we're able to call Christ our brother. And the Spirit dwells in us and moves us to cry out to God as our Father. You can't understand that. But you're living it every day as the Spirit guides you into deeper knowledge of Christ. And by knowing Christ, you know your Father. So to answer the question then, why Christ first? We can say this, because to know Christ is to know God. To put Christ first is to put God first. In fact, to put Christ first is the only way to put God first. This is how God has chosen to work in his great act of redemption. The Father sent his Son to die for sins on our behalf. That's the only way to God. And he also chose to reveal himself fully in his Son. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things. So what does this mean then for us today in our daily lives? Is this just ivory tower theological nitpicking? I can be guilty of that. Does it, does it have any bearing on our lives today? Is all this talk of inseparable operations, I can't even say it without mumbling, an order of processions or perichoresis? Is it just another way for theology nerds to build up their own self-righteousness? Well, it can be. Uh, but I also think it's important. I mean, for one thing, we're talking about God, and, and how we talk about God is important. How we think about God is important. That doesn't mean you have to understand everything I said. I'm sure I don't understand everything I just said. We all have different gifts in the church, right? So even if the doctrine of the Trinity leaves your head spinning, let me repeat what I think is the bottom line here. That's to put Christ first is to put God first, and the only way to put God first. And here's maybe just a few uh, practical implications of this truth. Uh, first, I, I think this should lead us to maybe curb our enthusiasm for the trappings of what I'll call civil religion. You know, it, it's not uncommon still to hear a politician or a celebrity or a TV show mention God, and, and this goes way back in our, in our history. As some, if not most, of our nation's uh, founding fathers were happy to talk about God and might even say Christianity was the highest form of religion but didn't believe that Jesus was God, certainly men like Jefferson and Franklin. You, know, you can go a long way toward just by mentioning God, but it doesn't mean that you're a believer. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this point, but I've just heard too many cultural references to God where I get the sense that as a Christian I'm supposed to be eating this up. And, and I'm not saying that there's no earthly benefit to having people believe in God, even if there's not, they're not Christians. Uh, but but you know, putting the word God in speeches or songs or on monuments and money, that's not something I get that excited about anymore. It, it just pales in comparison to the church's calling to put Christ first in our hearts and lives and put his love on display and make him known to our neighbors. But it's not just a problem in the culture out there. It's, it's a problem in Christian culture as well. I once did this experiment where I was on a road trip. I, I can't remember what part of the, what state I was driving through, but I put on Christian radio for a full two hours and, and asked the question as I was listening nonstop, what would I know about God if, if all I heard were these two hours? And I recognize this isn't very scientific. This two-hour road trip is kind of maybe a small sample size, and who knows what what hour they were in and their programming, but still it was striking to me that in two hours I didn't hear any explanation of the gospel or exactly who Jesus was and what he came to do and why it matters. Uh, the most I heard was uh, something about a tree. By tree they meant cross, but mostly what that two-hour segment revealed about God is that uh, he loves you, he wants you to feel better about yourself, he wants to give you some energy and motivation to get through your day, and uh, if you sign up for a certain seminar they'll teach you what he has to say about money, you know, praise God that the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals more about God than the radio does, or at least the radio during those two hours did. But it's not just out there on the radio, it's, it's in here too. How often do we just assume the gospel in our prayers and devotions and even in our preaching and teaching? How often do we start to think maybe that what Christ did for us is great as a, a ticket to heaven, but to live life here and now we need some practical tips you know, it, it's easy just to go on autopilot as we're reading scripture or praying and not take that time to remember who we're able to approach him on the basis of Christ's work to remember the cross every day. Uh, we must keep going back to the cross. Um, I, I've always appreciated the words of Martin Luther, the cross alone is our theology. 
we take theology broadly as just how we think about God. The cross needs to be at the center of our thoughts toward God. You know, the most scholarly Bible study is foolishness if it doesn't help us to see Christ. The most uplifting worship experience is idolatry if it's not praise offered through Christ. And the most sacrificial deeds of charity are selfishness if not done in the name of Christ. Of course, this also means that if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ, you don't know God. If that's you, or if you're not sure, I would invite you to consider that this morning. Know Christ. The question, why Christ first, leads us to see just how important it is that we put Christ first. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. But it also leads us to see how beautiful it is and what assurance there is for us if we put Christ first. We put Christ first because God reveals himself to us in the person and work of Christ. That means that if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. If you know Christ, you know the Father. Jesus died for you. And no other person of the Godhead has another shoe to drop. There is no other God that is hidden behind Christ. The fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. All that is in God is revealed in Christ. God has spoken in his Son. This truth will always bear repeating that Jesus did not die for you to make the Father love you. Jesus died for you because the Father loved you. For God so loved the world. He did not spare his Son but gave us, gave him for us all. Your heavenly Father is not up there saying, man, I really wanted to smite that, 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 that sinner, but, but Junior had to go and die for him. You know, there, there's no judgment, no condemnation, no grudge that the Father has for you. There is no thought or attitude God has for you that he has not already revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, is God's final word about you, period. Why put Christ first? Because it's the only way to know God and because what a God he is that we know through Christ. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, let's, uh, Father, let's pray. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son that you have given us to show us this wonderful evidence and display of your heart toward us, your love toward us, to see the Father's heart. We need only look to your son and his broken and bloodied body as he breathes out his last breath on the cross and look to the empty tomb and the victory over sin and death that he has won his righteousness is your final word about us. And so as we gather as this new church under this new name with the same mission that we've always strived to have, we ask that this simple prayer would be a reality in us, that in us, Father, Send your spirit to glorify your son. We pray this in the name of your son, through your spirit, and for your glory. Amen.
in response to this. Maybe I've made a couple things, <laughs> words clearer uh, about the meaning of this, but let's go ahead and recite together uh, the Nicene Creed. Um, we'll all recite it together in unison. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one universal and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.